Welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights. Today I have a very special guest with me. I have Mr. Dan Jackson. How are we doing, Dan? Thank you very much for having me on, Gary. Very pleased to be here. You're welcome. Um, how's things? Okay. Yeah, things are a bit mental. Um, obviously, said virus is causing mayhem up and down yeah. this country, um, especially this industry. Um, but generally, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Probably for those who don't know or follow your YouTube channel and, and various things you do, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to enter the electrical industry? How I entered the electrical industry? Um, right, so I started A-levels and I hated it. Um, I didn't like the structure, the lack of discipline. Some days I would have literally one hour of classes um, for the entire day and it just going from um, secondary school to that I just I don't know I just didn't gel with it and and to be perfectly honest I kind of wanted money so I could go out with my mates uh, chase the girls go out on my moped and so I quit and worked for um, WS Atkins Engineering as uh, an admin and then I soon realized that I'd struggle to climb the ladder there without having a degree. So I said to my dad, who's a builder, I want to do what you do. And he was like, no, son, you can't do that. It's the most stressful game in this world. Mm. <laughs> and because um, I used to love working for him in the summer holidays and stuff, you know, plasterboarding and just general tidying and sweeping up and just helping him do whatever. And um he said to me, look, if you really want to get into a trade, I recommend you get into electrics because it's the tidiest and cleanest trade and it's good money. <laughs> yeah. So I looked into it um, and I applied. It, must, it was 200 companies, I think, what I wrote to. And um, they took me on. They signed me up with JTL and I started my apprenticeship. And as soon as I started, mate, I absolutely loved it, really loved it. And that was one day a week release with a local yeah. college. Yeah, that was like, I think it was a Monday. Yeah, Monday for my, but for some reason, the apprenticeship then, this was in, oh, when was it? 2005, I think. It was, it, the apprenticeship was only two years in college. And then you had to do a final year. But I, I qualified and got my MVQ level three within two and a half years, more or less. So I was 19 when I qualified. And yeah, it was, it was a day release thing. Yeah. Did you find you had good variety of work to be able to uh, crack on with the MVQ? And, and obviously you did it in such quick time. No, I didn't. So, so the first company I worked for was a company called Status Building Services. And they were, they were based in Surrey. They're actually not around anymore. I think they got bought out or they went bust or something like that. Um, but it was... They, it's more building services, so building maintenance, cleaning, you know, maintaining air handling units, um, checking the temperatures of taps, of water that comes out of the tap in big offices. And I didn't touch a single socket for an entire year of my apprenticeship at all. And so I actually, so in year one, I actually quit and found another company. And I joined a company called uh, Metricab Power Engineering, who are still going strong today. I think they've got a good reputation. I still talk to some of the guys there. And we done big stuff. We done, um, we might fit out a whole basement just doing containment. We might um, do HV, we might install a generator. So obviously the first year was more learning about how to f uh, fraud your, your expenses. <laughs> Yeah, how to sleep on a job and, and get home early. And the second year was more about, you know, the, the industrial side of things. But again, I quit that and got another job. So my whole apprenticeship was spanned across three companies. And the reason I quit the second one was I, I, I don't know, they just could treat it as a, an apprentice. You're treated quite, you know, like a number. And the labourers kind of done the electrical work and then the apprentices done the digging the holes. And I don't know, I just wanted to do general electrical contracting. So I joined another company and I, I loved it. 
I absolutely loved it. We mainly we mainly done petrol stations up and around the country. So I was I think I when I started there I must have been just 18 or something like that, and I was sent all around the country. Loved it so much. Shop fitting. Okay. Oh, it was the shop fitting element, not necessarily the hazardous area. Both. Element. Both. Both. So yeah, it, the shops um, inside and outside, but we also done a lot of general shops as well. So we used to do you know some of the the um, high street fast chain restaurants um but yeah we've done hazardous stuff as well okay what was there anything particularly challenging about you know um installing on a on a petrol station so when you when you um do installs and you work on petrol stations you have to undertake a health and safety course to um it's more of awareness about the dangers of working on a petrol station the, the biggest danger obviously is the general public and traffic so my old manager actually he had an incident this was going back years and years ago he was down a manhole someone drove through a barrier and as he stood up they it was a transit drove straight over his back and he was he still got disabilities to this day from it but um so it's the traffic because people are so blind when they come in so when you've got and what we used to do on um, some of the old garages is that you might have um you might have two sets of pumps or two lanes or whatever they they shut half the petrol station down refurb one side get it up and running and then refurb the other so it's a live working petrol station if it was fully closed closed off and and closed for the duration obviously it's a different story and it's safer but that is probably the biggest problem and in, in and just managing the general public i've seen so many people walk through six inches of concrete i just push a barrier out of the way and just walk through it um so yeah it's the i think it's the working environment it's not so much the fuel and the explosive atmosphere that just comes it almost it's, it's just drummed into you and a lot of it's just common sense but things like you know i haven't done it in ages though so this is going back quite a few years but um you know all the obvious stuff don't smoke anywhere near <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to use your, your mobile phone and a lot of the stuff of the mobile phone is is that a mobile phone is a distraction as well yeah um and when you work on petrol stations you see what people the general public are like it's frightening um and then obviously inside inside the retail units um petrol stations are tts or they're supposed to be so there's different you know configuration in how you wire distribution boards and circuit breakers and stuff like that um and believe me i've i've tripped out um, massive service stations with you know six tankers filling up at the time and I've tripped out the entire site before so and th- they lose that money because they can't get them basically on that particular site um, tripped it out and they can't account for how much fuel has been used so I got the blame for that which is fun yeah I'm sure that's a high, pre- high pressure situation I've had a few of those where I've turned stuff off um I had one, one particular incident. At, um, I don't know if I should. I won't name the company. <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite a big global company, um, but they have trading floors. And um, yeah, I activated one of the air circuit breakers, which uh, shut down the floor. Um, luckily, the, ser- the servers were um, supported by UPS, and I quickly pumped up the ACB to get it back on. Um, but that wasn't a fun experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this particular one I'd done, what it was, I isolated the the circuit I was working on, locked it off. It was a single pole MCB, so it was it was dead. I cut the flex and it tripped out the the RCD further down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think most are probably double pole isolation now, aren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to be doing, yeah, to, to avoid... Um, minimize any obviously faults so yeah that's what you're supposed to do but a lot of petrol stations you'll go on you'll see that the setups aren't quite suitable for what they should be and so again that is a challenge when you're working on live sites and carrying out maintenance so you you say you were encountering that uh, around what your second year third year that's sort of my third year yeah all right okay so where where did you kind of go after you like you say you qualified and did you remain with that company for a period of time yeah i did so i was with them for three and a half years and 
although we done petrol stations, you, you know what it's like, electrical contract in the industry, things change. So um, we got more into sort of, I suppose, you know, more general work, like we've done office fit outs, warehouses, um, even domestic work and stuff like that. So it wasn't all just petrol stations. It was just mainly in the first year and, and the person I was kind of teamed up with. Mm. So stayed with them for three and a half years. And then I was actually running um, a new build house. It was a two-year project. So this house was enormous. In uh, not- Two years for a house. That's a pretty yeah. big house. It was an, it's the biggest house I've worked in. And it was, it was stunning. It was amazing. And that was in Nottinghamshire. And that was when the rece- during a recession and my company I worked for went bust. So literally overnight they went wonky. Um, and then that's when I set up my company. Right. Okay. So you, you did do it straight away. Yeah. So I was 21. I was 21 when I set up my company. Um, sorry, I just dropped something on my keyboard. Um, yeah, I was 21. And yeah, right in the deep end because that is young. Thinking about it now, <laughs> it's actually it really is young. very young. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility at 21. Yeah, and I don't know. It was just kind of smashed it really. Even though we was in a recession and there was a lot of people, you know, without work. A lot of people still without work at that time because it was. I mean, it was the back end of the recession, so it was 2010. And mm. um, but work was flowing. I literally just couldn't stop coming in. So there's there's probably quite a good parallel there, obviously, with what's going on at the moment and obviously the recession and, and times like that. What did you do to set yourself apart to keep that work flowing in? So the biggest thing, and this, this will happen now, is cash flow. So cash has to, it's the driving factor of a business. You need cash. If you haven't got cash, you're always going to be struggling. But everything else can work. Everything else can function. But you need to manage that that cash. So you'll find a lot of businesses, a lot of um, companies now, in you know, electrical companies and other sort of trades, they will go bust because they won't have the cash coming in if it's been, um, you know, if customers are cancelling and people don't want work to do because, you know, it's inevitable, it will happen. But it doesn't mean that, work doesn't need to be done our population is still growing we still have infrastructure that needs maintaining projects you know might be on hold a little bit right now but maintenance is is something that will continue and when we first started up it was all about getting cash in a bank so and i'm talking a lot of it to run an, uh, anybody who has an electrical contract in business will know you need a hell of a lot of cash to run and it's to it's for a rainy day. It's to cash flow projects because you you know typically you get paid afterwards a lot of the time. Um, and so we had a bit of an agreement, and you know because we had good relationships with suppliers, wholesalers, they give us incredibly incredibly friendly credit terms, even though we were a startup company. But we had orders. We had orders from you know a university from other. Um, clients that they could prove they've got the money and so we kind of come up with a deal that we'd supply the labor they pay for the materials they obviously get a discount on the materials because we're not putting markup on it and we agreed a certain time so they we'd start getting money in the bank just to keep things rolling um and then once and i didn't get paid for like five months but at the time i didn't need it because i'd already saved quite a bit i didn't and i kind of reduced what i was spending anyway at home and so things like didn't really need the sky tv i mean mainly because i was working 16 hours a day yeah. <laughs> um and yeah it's all about the cash because the thing is a business is literally it's a few letters that you put together you register with company's house in order to pay tax right but everything else around it still needs to happen still needs to flow and you know obviously there's a lot of people out there who close a business down um you know obviously get paid a lot of money close business down screw everybody over and then set up again it happens time and time and time again but in this instance with what's happening right now with the current climate sometimes you know this well this is what's going to happen a lot of people are going to have to close shop 
and there's going to be a lot of people who owed a lot of money and it's going to be a lot of upset. And I think you do have to just be, you know, you have to question your morals and see what you can do. Even myself right now, Gary, I've had a lot of people cancel work on me um, because they're worried about they won't be able to afford my wages and my stuff isn't essential with what I do now. And even some of my clients, I've said to them, look, if it's going to be a problem with your cash flow, just let me know and we can sort something out. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, but the, I think I think a lot of people are scared because they haven't got you know they can't really see that money in uncertainty. But you know the the world still needs to move; it still needs to happen. So probably going back then to you setting up your own business, did you go straight into the fire alarm, you know, special specialism, um, or did you still continue to do general electrics? Right. So I so the company I worked for with who where I completed my apprenticeship, they had two sides. They had an electrical and they had an alarm side. And when I say alarm, it's mainly intruder alarms, but they they did do fireworks. They had one commissioning engineer and then they used to get us electricians to wire the fire alarms. But a lot of the electricians never wanted to touch fire alarms. And I was always game for anything like it's a, it's, it's a cable. I'll wire it like I'd work anywhere in a country. I was really flexible when I was younger. Things are a little bit different now that I've got family. But when I was younger, I was like, I'll work any hour, any day, um, do whatever. So I had a good understanding of firearms and the company gave me the standards. And I was, you know, just like on the electrical side, I wanted to always increase my knowledge. So I was always reading the standards. So I had that background knowledge. And then, so when I set up my company, it was an electrical contracting company. However, very quickly an opportunity arose from um, a facilities company to carry out a contract which was electrical and firearms but a stipulation was is that we had to be BAFE accredited so I got the BAFE, um, the BAFE accreditation, accreditation for the company um, and we had the work there it was on the plate it was like do you want to take a yes or no so just kind of rolled with that and obviously got people in who had the knowledge and understanding. But even as we grew the company, the electrical bias was always, you know, every everybody was an electrician other than in the end, we had like, I think it was one firearm engineer who wasn't an electrician, but everybody was electrician and then continued their knowledge and, and um, learned the fire alarm side. Because I think knowing electrics gives you a really, really good basis and understanding. And then when we kind of got into the fire side with that particular contract, I recognized the, the good money, the, the opportunity there. And towards the end, before I left my business, we were doing far more fire alarm work, far more. Mm. And, um, and again, it's just recognizing what makes the money what doesn't make the money and obviously focusing your interest on what makes the better profits, which keeps your guys happy. You know, it's not just about the money, but it's, you know, what works for everybody and fire. I, just, I love fire. Honestly, I love, I, I loved getting into it. I love learning it. Um, but then I, I, I always say I'm an electrician by trade. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Was it, was there a particular element you enjoyed about, the fire um, side of things then hmm i try and choose my words <laughs> wisely um i think it's far easier mate to make good money if i'm honest yeah yeah just being like straight here i think it's far easier to make good money like for example there's a lot of cost and risk in wiring it but it's very easy to design very straightforward to commission and maintain um, and you tend to find it's the electricians who install the cabling a lot of the time obviously not not always um but it's to go in and, and also if you if you're a general electrical contractor and you ask a client 400 pound a day for an electrician plus vat people are like what the hell that's a lot of money i'm not paying that you ask for £400 a day for a fire alarm engineer. People are like, oh, God, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, cool, cool, go, go ahead. Don't argue at all. 
So for me, I like doing both because, I mean, it requires both as well. You have to wire power supplies for um, firearm panels and systems anyway, and, you know, different aspects that integrate onto the firearm system. Um, but they just kind of went very well together. And but I, I just enjoyed the fire. Um, for, I, I do find fire really interesting. I mean, I've been involved in a number of actual fires where I've had to go in and assess that the fire alarm system was, you know, designed and installed and maintained to how it should be um, in part of an investigation. And just learning fire behavior is just is just fascinating. And um, because and also we're saving people's lives. That's the purpose of it. It's supposed to detect a fire and alarm people to save a life. Essentially, a lot of the time, sometimes it's property. But um, I just find it fascinating. I'd never claim probably to be a firearm specialist. But like you say, I've done as a when I was working on the tools many, many years of actually going around and just installing the loops and the sounders and various bits of kit. And um, I think. I probably, as I was going through my apprenticeship at the time, did probably didn't really have a full appreciation of the systems. Yeah. I was just a cable monkey going point to point. Yeah. Which was probably a shame, and it's something I've kind of stepped away from. Although, obviously, you do still cover it in design, not quite as detailed. It tends to be more of a, well, we need a fire alarm. Yeah. Um, so did you find, obviously, it sounded like you had quite a bit of a business answer to that, but... Did, was there any part of you that wanted a technical challenge? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because again, I think a lot of people think fire alarms are straightforward, and you know, I suppose in some ways they are, but you can get really complicated buildings, and a lot of kind of like my specialist, my niche, I guess, was historical properties, mm. and a lot of it was MICT cabling. And again, my team were absolutely amazing at it because we were electricians. So a lot of fire alarm companies, what they do when they have to do MICC is sub it out, whereas we had it all in hand, all in house. And um, obviously there's, there's challenges along the way, but not just the building, but it's also working with the, the fire strategy of what goes off when, what needs to tell who and what. Um, and it's far more than just a detector going off and a sound of sounding. You know, you can set it up and program it to all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I mean, personally, I like to keep things simple. But again, if there's a, a consultant or there's um, a requirement, uh, you know, fired a risk assessment or something that requires something a little bit more beyond standard, then um, you've got to use software to program it and check that it's working correctly and again I, I you know you have to work with more with electronics i guess with fire alarm systems as well because you're not just working with um, 230 volts or you know 400 volts ac you're working with ac dc um you work with integrating different systems as well so you you'll have to work with um lift companies and and it's literally you have to liaise between the two to make sure things are working properly. If you're working in commercial kitchens, you might have um, some systems that extinguish fires. And it's just learning about that, really. Um, and also just understanding the panels, because every panel is slightly a bit different in how they work. And you get to know them. And, you know, I don't know every single panel out there at all, by no means. But it is interesting learning how they work, how the software works, um, the little, you know, I might speak to another fire alarm engineer and they know the little knack you have to do when you're trying to program a certain software and you're getting an error or a problem. And it's like, yeah, you know, achievement, you've got round it. Um, and that's always been fascinating too. Probably, obviously, mineral is a bit of a, a lost art, isn't it, really? And one of the things that in probably say the last 10 years is we've seen the fp 200s the fp 200 gold sort of creeping in to the industry yeah um, is there any particular obviously there's a there's a cost and time benefit to that over going with a mineral insulated but are there still instances where you would advise a mineral well the firearm standards um, and i won't go into it in too much detail but some some types of properties depending if they're high rise or 
or um, I'm trying to think of examples now, um, but you have to have what's called enhanced cabling. So sometimes mineral is asked for, not necessarily because you can get soft skin cables that are perfectly fine as well. Um, but I think, I think for the historical properties, it's more aesthetics than anything. And I guess longevity, if it's done correctly, though, Gary, that's the important thing. It has to be done correctly. Otherwise, you know, MICC doesn't last long, really, if, if you're making ends that go off and it causes you one hell of a headache. Because a lot of it's like on stonework and stuff like that. And even though typically you are fire alarms in red, you know, if, if everybody agrees and it's on a drawing, quite often it used to be bare. And it looked amazing. It looks, it does look amazing, but it is, it is expensive compared to FP. But even, but you can't, you can't compare it. Like bare MICC on a, like a stone wall looks far better than, you know, even black FP, white FP is an absolute eyesore, and red, Jesus Christ, it looks awful um, on stone walls. So yeah, but it, I, I do know some historical properties. Some premises managers or clients or whatever, they they won't opt for MICC because of the cost. So I, I suppose it's just personal preference. Yeah, I think I think that's something I've noticed just over the working with some large fire alarm companies um, on, on various projects uh, such as like Crossrail and stuff. Minerals not a consideration anymore, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and again, when I was working on petrol stations when I was obviously younger, a lot of the petrol stations were in MICC. So we had to either adapt what we had, but a lot of the time on the new builds and stuff, we were ripping it out and putting SWA in. So it's, it's definitely it's definitely a yeah something that's losing its presence for sure. But having said that, in the last sort of three years of my old contracting company, it's the main cable we installed. Like by far, I'm talking probably like 85% of the work was MICC. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's a lost art, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Like when we, I mean, we used to get electricians come on and they're like, you know, I've never touched MICC before. I'm a little bit worried. I'm like, nah, 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 we'll show you how to do it. And before you know it, they're, they're great at it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just it's just a thing, isn't it? It's practice makes perfect. You know, practice yeah. makes the master. It's a real shame that obviously... I know even just cuts cut offs of armoured are a tougher, you know, colleges to come by at the moment. But obviously you tend to get one bit of mineral cable, you get one gland, yeah, one tiny amount to pot it, and it's there you go, and then they rock, they snag that down as complete. You've done it, and it's yeah, you're not yeah, you're not yeah, you can't go out in the real world and start installing MICC if you've just done it once in college. <laughs> No, exactly. Yeah, it's not um, it's not ideal training, really. Is there a, is there a maybe I'm unaware of it, but is there a special courses you can go on that um, provide fire alarm specialists with that sort of training on on that type of cable? Not that I'm aware of, Gary. It's literally I'm going to show you how to do it this afternoon, and then you're going to be supervised. <laughs> right. Okay. Um. No, not that I'm aware of. No. Not at all. But like I said, like um, I tell you what, the, the one guy who was who was the best at it was um, he was the one who wasn't an electrician. He come on as a labourer for a big project I had, and he was actually a horse farrier. He used to fit shoe horses. That's his trade. And he come on as a labourer just to sort of because um, it was a massive site, just take cables here and there, help pull some cables in left, right, and centre. Well, he sort of said, "Look, can I have a go?" And of course, I mean, we installed miles and miles of this stuff. It was ridiculous. And he turned out to be better than anybody else. And the way he dressed it, the way he made it off. And don't get me wrong, he's a bit patchy at the beginning. But towards the end, he was just phenomenal. I just I just think, you know, you just need to practice it. And there needs to be an opportunity for you to do it on site that you're supervised and made sure. Because obviously, we made sure the supervisor was uh, testing out the legs each time. Um, and a lot of fire alarm companies, when they install a loop, they don't test each leg. They don't do that at all. They don't test in between points and they just make up results. That's what I've witnessed anyway. 
Um, but with MICC, I mean, Jesus Christ, you have to. It's in your interest to yeah. making sure that you're you're tested it properly because yeah, if it's down, I mean, yeah, that's problematic and it's expensive to replace. So obviously, when you had your business then did you obviously take on apprentices yes yeah made a big point about apprentices always had quite a few apprentices um each year um depending on how things were going at the time um it's hard though i've i think yeah in all honesty out of the eight years i had my business electrical contracting there was only one who i thought was a good enough standard and yeah it's tricky and he actually buggered off and travelled to Australia <laughs> once he qualified. <laughs> I was gutted when he told me as well. I was just like, I was like, mate, you've got to do what you've got to do. You've got this opportunity. You're young. And I was like, I'm just so, and I've just, I have to let you know. I'm so annoyed. I'm losing <laughs> you because you're you're good at what you do. Because yeah. you know, we we gave him a van and his own, you know, everything to start going out on his own when he qualified and. Just a lovely lad as well, really, really good lad. And um, yeah, he buggered off to Australia. But all the others, actually, tell a lie. There was there was a couple of youngsters towards the end when I quit um, that are, I think will do really well when they qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's difficult because a lot of it's the attitude, Gary. It's not so much the ability; it's the attitude towards work. And yeah. um, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and I think especially youngsters, they're they're at an age where obviously there's a lot of changes going on in their life. They're transitioning from school to work life. They're 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 sort of um, I suppose they're experimenting and discovering sex, drugs, and alcohol, and you don't know what way it's going to go. Yeah, and put a bit of cash in your pocket as well. That doesn't help. Yeah, exactly. And money. Yeah, and money. And that kind of what fuels the sex, drugs and alcohol. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's hard because there's not there's quite little incentive to take apprentices on these days. Um, and you have to spend the time. You like it. Or I really when I see like some of the one man bands or the people who have like only a couple of people working for them. And they've got apprentices. I'm always thinking, you know, hats off to you because they they do tend to spend a very one on one time with their apprentices. And those guys have a great opportunity there um, because you've you've got that time. But, yeah, yeah, I've had apprentices and they've they've left or we've end up, you know, parting ways at the end of their apprenticeship or something like that because they're just not up to scratch. Yeah, no, I think I'd, I'd agree. I think it's definitely generational. And some of the apprentices during the later time of like management at my first company, there was a, a different attitude. There was all, I don't like to say it, but there was almost like a, a self-righteousness about it that they deserved the opportunity and didn't understand yeah. what was being offered. Um, the, th- the thing is, these... Uh, I mean, I'm generalising, but a lot of these youngsters really need good guidance. They need a good mentor from day one. Because I kind of look at some of my mentors as I was, you know, my my career was developing. And um, I needed people occasionally to slap me off my pedestal and kind of like refocus my attention. And, you know, a lot of these kids are young. They're they're going through a lot of changes in their life as well. And they, they, you know, they kind of need the, the discipline but not in the old school way of i'm gonna shove a length of conduit up your jumpsuit and <laughs> get out of place because that's just i mean that's just torture and bullying but um they they do need guidance in the right way and if you don't have that one-on-one guidance or encouragement they can slip very easily i think and be quite complacent and take things for granted yeah, I always found typically giving them responsibility helped. Yeah, because helped. yeah, I suppose a lot of youngsters don't have that. Whereas I don't know, I'm the age of where everybody had a paper round when you were younger, and if you if you didn't turn up to your paper round, you lost it, and it went to someone else, and then you lost all your money. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think a lot of the, I think kids have it much easier financially than what we did when we were young. So, yes, it's, I suppose it's about finding that balance with them. 
probably move forward then in terms of you, you left your company. Yeah. Um, and you toured the world for a year. Travelled the world, yeah. What um, What made you decide to do that? <laughs> um, I was at a point in my life where, I mean, there's a few things. I really fancied a new challenge and change in life. Um, I didn't really want to work for my company anymore. Um, it wasn't just me who owned it. So it was just a, a personal thing that I wanted to move on to try new things. Also, my wife, who's now my ex-wife, um, her mental health was really, really bad. And we just decided amongst us that we wanted to live a little bit. And I was all I ever done was just work, 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 work. And had very little time for myself. I had two young children. Just wanted a bit of adventure, really. And decided to sort of reboot and reset life, I guess. And, um, yeah, oh God, it was amazing. It really was. Did, you, was... Find, did you find it did reset for you when you came oh, back? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God. It compl- it's completely refocused my outlook on many things. The problem is when you when you're running a business, especially an electrical contracting company, the wheel is turning very, very quickly. And I mean, people will relate to this now because of what's just happened. But as soon as someone puts the brake on the wheel and you have to stop and you actually have the time to kind of like assess what is going on, you kind of see where you're making mistakes or um or even, you know, see where you're taking things for granted. It just allows you to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. Mm. And, yeah, when you're, when you're in that cycle, it's very, very difficult to see that you're in that cycle. And it's very hard to understand why you're in that cycle. And the biggest challenge I have with my job now as a consultant and coach is people just can't see that there's another way of doing something because they're in it. And when you have the time to actually step out of it and look in, you're like, oh, yeah, crap. Why am I doing that? And then, yeah, it just helps you refocus on stuff. And I'm I'm so I'm so different now. I mean, I was living in Kent before. I've moved to Essex now. And I know it's not far. It's literally the next county along. But where I live now is is I'm not in London at all, whereas I was sort of within the M25. I've always lived within the M25. And um, yeah, now I live in like a sleepy little village and I I like going into London for work and socialising. I've got a lot of friends in London and I do like London. But I also like coming back and retreating to my sleepy, quaint little village on the seaside. Yeah. (laughs) And I just think, I don't know, I just, I don't know. I I think um, I was just in a very downward cycle beforehand. And now I really appreciate looking after myself more. So I'm, I have like a routine with doing yoga, various exercise, walking, eating healthy and actually reading and doing stuff that benefits my life. Whereas before I had really bad habits and um, a lot of time I was just working, working, working. And um, sometimes it's not productive when you're just, you're so busy with it all and you actually start becoming unproductive. Whereas now when I, when I, I'm, I'm aware I'm doing that, I actually stop what I'm doing and I'll do something different. I might go for a walk. I might read a book and then give myself a bit of a breather and then go back to what I was doing. And then, you know, the productivity picks up and increases. Um, and I think again, with what I do with work, I see a lot of people who are just very unproductive not very efficient and it's because they're just working themselves into the ground all the time and I was definitely doing that whereas now I'm I think the best thing it's given me is self-awareness really Mm. so yeah it's been interesting so so in terms of having that self-awareness then is there a a way you evaluate that that you could potentially advise other people Yes, I mean, some some things I do, I think people, I don't know, people think I'm bloody crazy for. So I try and simplify it. 
you have to give yourself your some time on your own not when i say own i mean on your own not with your partner not with your family but literally just you it's so important i'm not talking it has to be regularly it can be once a month or whatever and it might be doing something like going to the cinema on your own um i think just when you're on your own you're not talking you're not engaging with other people it just gives you that time just to think and be i think that's that's something everybody can try to achieve and i understand it it can be difficult with family life and stuff but it's, it's really important and not only for yourself but for your partner as well but also reflection is really important so every friday i will write down what's been good about the week what's not been so good which i'd like to change and what my intentions are for the following week so kind of just self-evaluation and reflection by writing it down physically writing it down and because without a plan and without steps to a plan you're just plodding along you've got nothing whereas if you if you've actually got something that you're working towards and it's structured it's easier to achieve and it and it could be sometimes like so now you might have a bit of an argument with a supplier or something and or even one of your guys and I say I say this to the people that I coach as well like they're, they're talking about this one particular guy that they're really annoyed with he does this he does that and I'm like what's going on at home with him what's going on with his family like what's what's the bigger picture here why is he something's going on and then and it's you know it's encouraging people to obviously not be nosy about what you know what is going on at home but actually just treat people with a little bit more compassion and and we we've we've all got our own little bubble but we've got to understand people have their own little bubble too mm. and um and so yeah i think um i think reflection and goal setting is is really important and like i said at the beginning just spending some time on your own i think it massively helps yeah that's good advice um, yeah so obviously you mentioned about typical mistakes you see businesses make. Do you find that the they're generally the same mistakes? Yeah, or? do you know what? They're the same mistakes, but on a different scale, depending on how big this big the business is. Yeah, they generally all have the same mistakes. I mean, a, a lot of my clients are, I'd say, up to five people working for them. Yeah. And they're trying to scale up, sort of thing. Um, but a lot of it is cash flow is the biggest one that people struggle with. Yeah. Um, and it's getting money in a bank. It's how you do that. Um, and then the other big one is people seem to work for clients that treat them like crap. And, um, they just kind of, you know, if you act like someone's slave, you are a slave it's that simple and but again people don't really have, you know it's like a lot of um electrical contractors especially when they're starting out they they think they see the the inquiries come in because there's work out there they see the inquiries come in they they naturally think that's work that's money that's revenue and yeah of course it's it it could be but the important thing here is it's potential revenue and so I think it's really important to recognize what sort of client you're attracting and why and what you get out of that relationship with that client. So a classic example is letting agents. So there's so much stuff online advising tradesmen to get in with letting agents. Oh, they're a gold miner, a gold miner, they've got loads of money, they've got loads of properties and stuff like that. Yeah, they've got loads of properties. But, uh, and this isn't all of them, but a lot of them don't really care about having a good job carried out they just care about getting it done and making their little their little bit on on top um and obviously if they can squeeze your cost down they make they can make a little bit more in one way or the other or it's about keeping the client happy or, or whatever but i i mean i made that mistake running around like a like an idiot going from job to job to job and not really making much money at all and like one of my clients recently said that He's discovered that all they do is get him to go to do fault finding pretty much for free. And then he gives the work elsewhere that's cheaper or financially benefits them. And I think you need to you need to assess your business and go, what makes us the most money? 
like which which is the most profitable work which is the work that actually makes it keeps everybody happy and is you know flows well um and a lot of people don't do that they just they just take in whatever they can and then they burn out quite quickly is that would that then be a preference over say if you're struggling to get work would you then potentially say okay maybe take that work if that's all that's available or still or still maintain of course so yeah of course but i think there's a way to go about it so uh, a good example is a one-man band that first come to me about a year ago and he barely had any work he's working for builders and, and the problem was he was working for like 150 pound a day um for builders and and you know he didn't have much work on but he didn't value himself 150 pound a day isn't enough to run an electrical contracting business to pay for everything you need to include in training um you know everything that goes with it there's so many overheads that go with it and and to be able to step up the game a bit but yeah of course you've got to have work but at the same time you you've you can't if you were desperate and you needed to take something for less than what you would like, that's fine. You've got to do that. Of course, you, you've got to feed your family. That's absolutely fine. But when you're trying to scale up and you're trying to grow your business, you, you've got to, it's got to be profitable. And this is the thing. You need to know your figures within your, within your business. And I know so many guys who there seems to be a magic number out there. We charge £250 a day because everybody else does. And I'm like, well, why? Like, why everybody else does? I'm like, yeah, but everybody else's overheads is a little bit different depending on how their business is. And people don't actually understand what equates to £250 a day. Like, you need to know your numbers. Like, it's, it's really, I mean, you, I won't, like, get bogged down by them, but you need to understand them to understand and review to see how well you're doing. That's like a marker point, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's, that's good advice. It's something I've had to do a few times is obviously you get get into a rhythm of a price point and then you end up going right okay this is a a large tender that i actually want to win what is a a cost effective one that that doesn't actually mean i'm going to lose money at the end of the day yeah and and the thing is um going kind of back on what you said about like you know would you would you take particular work if you were desperate and you didn't have much of it but you've also got to be conscious about the race to the bottom and it's literally like if if you were doing fuse board changes for whatever you priced it for and somebody else is doing it for, you know, 50 percent of what you're doing it for. And you agree to that because because you're under a bit of commercial pressure. You're like, well, I need the work and whatever. And, and you kind of think in your head, well, you know, we're not going to make anything on it, but we're going to do it. But that then reduces the market value of your services and the trade in general. So for everybody done that, it reduces the market value. Whereas if everybody said, no, the standard price is this amount, then that becomes the market value. Yeah. Um, and the problem is when you have financial crises, like the last recession we had and whatever's happening now, you are going to get that scenario where people start going to cut their prices to, um, to get to work and um you know the clients believe they might benefit but people start cutting corners to make it happen that's the problem so it's it's false economy it is yeah i think that's something that is uh something that needs to be remembered across the board doesn't it for not even just our industry probably all industry Um, yeah and and this is this is the this is the issue with the, I suppose, the uh, short course electricians, because a lot of them come from a different industry. They come into the electrical industry. They've done a short course. They can now work in people's houses. And to them, £180 a day might be actually seem quite good because, you know, it's much more than what they've earned before doing whatever they were doing. But, you know, experienced companies experienced guys will realize that there is definitely a value on on your services and what you're you know what you're willing to give for that and it opens up the opportunities to 
to people who who don't value themselves as high, either through ignorance or, you know, perhaps sometimes they do it consciously. So it's going to be interesting, Gary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we will uh, see how it all pans out. So probably on that note, I do have one final question. Yeah. What is your favourite movie? <laughs> My favourite movie is The Greatest Showman. The great. So that's uh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah. I've not actually seen that one, but oh I've, man, you're missing out. It's a good good musical. Yeah. Do you know what? It, it, it's not the typical type of movie that I I would have watched, but I've watched it and I loved it. I loved it, even though it is kind of musical. It's not um, like a Les Miserables where they're just singing what they're saying. No, not at all. There is a, there is a story in between, and it is you know talking. Um, but I love it. I love what it's about. And um, and I think it's when you watch something or even read a book, depending on what's going on in your life right at that particular moment, it depends on how you connect with the book or the movie. Mm. And at that time I watched it. It's I mean it's all about a bit of a bit of a weirdo who had a dream and made it happen. And at that time I was thinking I wanted to go travelling. So for me it was you know the way I related it. I was you know I mean if you see me Gary I've got bloody long hair I look a little bit strange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't look like your typical tradesman. Yeah. And uh, you know I've had I suppose I wouldn't say what's the word discrimination I don't really want to say that but people will judge the way I look and um so you know a bit of a weirdo and then I had this goal this crazy goal and kind of achieved it and that's kind of what the movie's about and it's yeah, an awesome yeah, yeah no, that's good I'm definitely going to give that a watch watch it honestly it's it's amazing and people say oh it's for kids it's for women it's where it's my favorite movie <laughs> yeah I quite agree I do love a musical yeah so thank you very much for your time today thank you for having me it's been much appreciated and thank you everyone for listening Thank <laughs> you.